Uh, you know, Roger Rutnam hired as his lawyer, John Dowd, who was for a time President Trump's lawyer. And they adopted, you know, a belligerent, accusatory, scorched earth, uh, witch hunt chanting defense. Sometimes it's better to hire the quiet lawyer who, you know, knows how to accommodate various interests and knows how to advise you on the best course. Belligerent people don't often like to do that. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. If Robert Mueller had never been appointed special counsel, the most feared name in the halls of the White House would have likely been my guest today, Preet Bharara. In 2009, Barack Obama appointed Bharara to be U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, a powerful position that's launched the careers of countless prosecutors, including, irony alert, former FBI Director James Comey and Donald Trump's manic mouthpiece Rudy Giuliani. Preet quickly became known for his fearless investigations of white-collar crime, prosecuting nearly 100 executives for insider trading and negotiating astronomical settlements and fines from some of the nation's biggest banks. He also went after terrorists, New York politicians from both political parties, and launched a landmark investigation into Russian money laundering. Now, what on earth could Donald Trump possibly have to fear from such a prosecutor? In fact, when Trump took office in January 2017, Preet admitted that he was surprised and flattered that he was asked to stay in his job. Of course, two months later, the protean president did what made him famous on The Apprentice. He fired Preet. Well, justice may be blind, but she's not dumb. And apparently she has a pretty good sense of humor. In addition to Team Mueller, Donald Trump and his comrades are now being investigated by Preet's former office, the Southern District of New York. As for Barrara, he hosts his own podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet, and has just published a riveting new book, Doing Justice, in which he makes his case for why the rule of law is so vital to what truly makes America great. Welcome, Preet Bharara, to TBD. Thanks for having me, Tina. So Doing Justice, Preet, your book, it's in many ways really a love letter to your old job and the amazing people that you work with at the Southern District. Your career obviously was precipitously cut short when uh, President Trump fired you. So do you miss being in the thick of it? I mean, with all the action that's going on? Let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very very much. Uh, look, it was a great job. I got a chance to do it longer than almost anyone uh, in the history of that office. I was there for seven and a half years. It's a year longer than Rudy Giuliani did the job um, and almost as long as Bob Morgenthau and Mary Jo White. And the main reason... I miss the work there is because the people are terrific and because the mission of the place I think is so important and something that people lose sight of these days when the rule of law seems turned upside down, that the only job is to do the right thing in the right way for the right reasons every day. And it sounds kind of corny to say, but that was how we thought about it and that's what we did every day. 
Yeah, so you were just driven by that sort of ethical zeal in a sense, right? Yeah, look, you know, people understand that being a lawyer is a, a representation of a client. And if you represent someone who's been charged with a crime, you make zealous arguments on their behalf. And sometimes you believe in the arguments and sometimes you don't. Uh, when you're a federal prosecutor in that office or any other office, your goal and your mission and your charge is to just do the right thing. Your client is the public and your oath is to the Constitution. And so you wake up every morning not trying to figure out uh, how to make a particular argument. You wake up every morning thinking about what the right thing to do is and how to make the argument in favor of the right thing. And that's that's really refreshing and very gratifying. And there are few other professions where that's possible, even within the law. Absolutely. Particularly, I mean, now it seems more important than ever. What I love in the book, actually, is there are so many fascinating sort of insights into legal process, which I'd never thought much about before. Uh, you write that sentencing is the most sobering moment in any trial, of course, when everyone files back into the courtroom to hear the climax of all that work and agony that has preceded. It must be extraordinarily sort of tense. What are your thoughts about the sentencing of Paul Manafort, which has been a kind of source <laughs> of great controversy? So when the first sentence came down in 47 months, I joined the chorus of people who said that was pretty low. The guidelines range was 19 and a half years to 24 and a half years. I don't think any judge was going to give that kind of sentence, even though the crimes were serious. The sentencing guidelines are discretionary. But in cases like that, they can be very, very high because they're tied to the dollar value of the fraud or the tax avoidance. Um, and then I predicted, like a lot of people did, that Judge Amy Berman Jackson would add to that sentence in the second case in D.C. that just happened a few days ago uh, to sort of compensate for that. Uh, you know, I was waiting with bated breath because we were recording my own podcast during that same time period, and we kept having to delay to figure out what the sentencing was so I could comment on it. But what was interesting and I think uh, correct and proper about what Judge Jackson did was she said at the start of the sentencing proceeding, look, um, it is not my job here to review or revisit some sentencing in a distinct case in some other court, um, thereby taking the onus off herself for trying to remedy something that had happened on some different set of facts in a different proceeding. But she did end up giving him another 43 months, thereby pretty much doubling the sentence. So that takes him to seven and a half years. I still think that's a little bit low. Well, he faces a third uh, conviction, doesn't he? I mean, on the, on the well, next now, case. Well, so, so this is the rate at which the news changes. I finished making my comments on my own podcast, uh, Stay Tuned, about the sentencing. And then as we were wrapping up in a studio like this and getting ready to leave, uh, breaking news, the Manhattan District Attorney, Cy Vance, filed charges also. So yes, he's facing jeopardy on a, on a third ground too, the significance of which, of course, is that if he gets convicted on any of those counts, he cannot be pardoned for them. Right, which is probably the, the thing that's going to be the most significant for him in the end. Um, should we ever feel sorry for a guy like Manafort? I mean, obviously, prosecutor's role is to it's to win conviction. I mean, you've got to win sentencing and you have to put the person away. So ever feel any sort of bad, you know, that you feel bad for the guy you put away? Well, just the first part of the, the premise of your question, I actually disagree with. Mm -hmm. The job of the prosecutor is not to win. The job of the prosecutor is not to put people away, uh, rack up convictions, get, you know, a scorecard up. The job of the prosecutor is to make sure the right thing is done and to make sure they pursue justice. And sometimes... That means getting a conviction. Sometimes it means doing an investigation and walking away from the case. It depends on the circumstances. But another point I make in the book over and over again about all the participants in the criminal justice process is that, and it sounds like a tautology and obvious, but everyone's a human being. The prosecutors are human beings. Some people might find that hard to believe. The judges are human beings. The defense lawyers are human beings. And then the reason everyone is there at a criminal proceeding is because of a defendant. Someone was charged 
And that's a human being too. So there can be times when someone has done something awful or terrible and should be punished for it. Uh, but as Brian Stevenson often says, you know, no one is the worst thing that they've ever done. People right. are more than that. So yeah, there are times you feel sorry, not, not necessarily for a defendant like Paul Manafort, and I can tell you why in a moment, but for their families and for their friends mm-hmm. and for the people who relied on them because they'll be separated from their liberty. And it's a terrible thing. You know, when the, when the conviction happens in court, and I write about this also in a, in a chapter called Verdicts, I just sort of describe what it's like to be in the courtroom, mm-hmm. you know, thick with anticipation and I, dread and, and, emotion. and prayer and emotion. And you get a conviction, which is what you're seeking and you think justice is done. It is not a moment of celebration for the prosecutor. It's a very, very sad, somber, deeply somber moment. I don't know of any other moments in civic life that are as somber as the moment that a conviction comes down from an ordinary person, you know, in a sweater, who's the foreperson of the jury. And at that moment, you feel sad generally that we live in a world where people do bad things and that in our system, you have to convene 12 ordinary Americans to sit in judgment of another human being and the consequence of their verdict may be the taking away of someone's liberty. Now, with respect to Paul Manafort, don't feel very sorry for him because he was a privileged person. He knew what he was doing. He was brazen about it. It happened over a long period of time. And then he had multiple opportunities to help himself. As an initial matter, he didn't cooperate. He went to trial. He got convicted. Then you'll recall between the first and second trial, he tried to cooperate uh, and then lied again. And then he tampered with witnesses and had to plead guilty to tampering with witnesses. It's outrageous behavior. Yeah. So he's not a sympathetic figure to me. Mm-hmm. You given another great chapter actually is one about snitches and how morally complex it is dealing with often very ethically distasteful people but who have got valuable information that you need. How do you rate the snitch du jour, Michael Cohen? Right? <laughs> Should we give his testimony credence given what a liar has been? Or I mean, would you put him on the stand? Probably not. Right. Um, I, I want to apologize to my prosecutor friends. I did entitle the chapter snitches, which is a term we don't like to use, but it had some flamboyance in it for the table of contents. And I think. <laughs> It'll be interesting to people because now, given how much focus there is on Trump and the Russia investigation and Michael Cohen, everyone has become an armchair sort of observer and wondering, like, how do you flip? What causes you to flip? What's the consequences of flipping? What's the morality of flipping? And, you know, it's all different reasons. Uh, I, I compare Cohen to some figures from organized crime who, who don't flip necessarily in the first instance because they're trying to get time off. They flip because they feel betrayed by the people for whom they're working. Mm -hmm. And Michael Cohen, in a way, felt betrayed by Donald Trump. My old office did not enter into a traditional formal cooperation agreement with Michael Cohen, the Southern District of New York. And my guess is, in part, that's because he didn't come completely clean about everything that he had done or all the knowledge he has about other people's misconduct. And the way our practice operated, if you didn't do that, then you don't get the benefit of a cooperation agreement. I also think that overall, his testimony in the House was credible on a lot of scores. He looks like he's turned the corner, and you saw contrition, and that's what you want to see in a cooperator. But there are problems with his testimony also. I think overall, if that had been a trial, the prosecutor in summation would have to explain away some things. For example, he said in his testimony uh, that he never sought a pardon um, and wouldn't think about seeking a pardon. And then it turns out later, well, he had before he had the current lawyer. and it's always difficult when you have someone who, whose, whose prior bad deed was lying uh, and then admitted to lying. Now, we have made cases, I've made cases on the backs of cooperators who have done bad things, uh, lying and otherwise, but it takes some work. And 
at the end of the day, he might be, you know, too odious a person to put on the stand. But I saw promise. So it's sort of a mixed bag. I saw promise in his testimony before the House, but it was far from perfect. Yeah. No. And then he also said that he'd never wanted to be uh, to go work for Trump in Washington, which was just such an obvious lie. But it was obviously the final thing he was hanging on to with his own self-image. Completely. And, and I think what happened there, they were unnecessary misleading statements. I think they were prideful. You know, he, he wanted to say, I, I never wanted a pardon from this man. I didn't want a, a handout from him, either in terms of a pardon or in terms of a job. When he could have easily said, you know what? Yeah, I work for the president. I thought I might go work there. I was disappointed about that, but that has nothing to do with why I'm speaking right. to you now. Yeah, he just couldn't he couldn't make himself do that. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next. Because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects. And say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. The book is full of great cases that you talk about. Uh, I mean, besides the kind of areas we're talking about, you prosecuted bin Laden's son, Somali pirates, al-Shabaab and al-Qaeda terrorists, paid assassins, crips, bloods, mobsters, the world's most notorious arms dealers. What was the most exciting case that you ever worked on? I mean, this is such a fabulous bouquet of malefactors. I've never thought of them as a bouquet. (laughs) You know, when people ask me what's my favorite case or the case I'm most proud of, what's the most exciting case, you know, I, I don't like to choose among my children. (laughs) <laughs> but I will say there were so many interesting cases and exciting cases that some of the most prominent ones didn't even make their way into the book. You know, we did this case in 2010, which was, which was pretty thrilling and odd, uh, the Russian spy group, including uh, Anna Chapman, you know, that captivated the headlines for a number of days and sort of reminiscent, you know, echoes of those things now. And the, the show, The Americans, yeah. is in part based on these you know, people who were living as ordinary Americans, but were actually Russian agents in towns and suburbs and communities around the country. Um, so that was thrilling. A case that I do talk about in the book, because it had an important consequence and it, it put the whole city on edge, was the pursuit, investigation, prosecution of Faisal Shahzad, the Times Square bomber. You'll recall uh, that on May 1st in 2010, this man set a bomb in the middle of Times Square, intending to kill thousands of people. And for 53 hours, he was on the loose. He was not a suicide bomber. He, he intended, as we learned later, to detonate the bomb, kill as many people as possible in one of the busiest thoroughfares in the country, um, and certainly in New York City. 
uh, and then come back and do it again and again and again. And so, you know, the, the, the diligence of the New York City police officers and FBI agents and the combined efforts of the Joint Terrorism Task Force and the prosecutors in my office who didn't sleep for 53 hours was very inspiring to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Russian case also must have tremendous echoes for you now when you're looking oh, yeah. at everything that's going <laughs> yeah. on. I mean, do you feel uh, more and more that we have been sort of at war with Russia and not even known it? Yeah, I, I do. I, I remember, not to cast aspersions on anyone, but... You know, I do think that the prior administration didn't take the Russian threat seriously enough. You know, we were in the middle of the quote-unquote reset when we unsealed the Russian spy case. And there were some, you know, folks who were not happy that we were going to be charging these people who were living in our midst unlawfully, uh, acting as as unregistered agents for the Russian Federation. We were ultimately able to charge folks. But I, I did get the feeling that we weren't taking it seriously enough. And I understand that there are other interests at stake. But as we've seen over the course of time, the people who were talking about Russia as being a big threat, including Mitt Romney, who was made a lot of fun right. of. They, they, he was he was mocked. Turned out to be right. Yeah. It always seemed an incredibly sort of glamorous thing to me in the movies to see agents arriving at an office, flashing a badge, you know, telling everybody to step away from their computer. Is that an exciting thing to do? Have you done it personally? No. In the movies and the TV shows, uh, the U.S. attorney does it. <laughs> on the show Billions, Paul Giamatti shows up uh, at the raids. Um, now I sit at the desk. <laughs> and you dispatch them. Yeah, other 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 folks. I don't know that it's it's sexy and glamorous. I mean, people forget they show up at 6 o'clock in the morning for a reason. It's the element of surprise. It's safer for police officers or for FBI or other agents. And they show up with a lot of force because there have been occasions where somebody is arrested in the middle of the day or at another time and they get some warning and some heads up and they have guns drawn. Or... Uh, as has also happened. They disappear. They do something. Well, they also, they might harm themselves. And th- there's a risk sometimes when, you know, the co- you know we, we had a case where we were investigating a police officer and agents approached and the police officer knew that he was under investigation uh, and he killed himself mm. uh, upon the approach. And there's nothing you can do about that. But, you know, sometimes it's the case that you have a lot of people showing up in a show of force for their own safety and for the safety of the person that they're investigating. Mm. So I've never thought about that uh, that aspect of it, actually. One of the early epiphanies that you had uh, was that you can't know anything about anybody, which we, we see constantly. I mean, so much of that, particularly in these sexual harassment cases, my God. I mean, you, you don't know anything about anybody. And you say that it came to you over a personal link that you had to the Menendez brothers, the two boys from the affluent California entertainment family who, who murdered their parents in cold blood in it was 1989, I think, that case. I mean, what was the epiphany? Why did it? Why did it hit you? Long before I went to law school, uh, and long, certainly long before I became a lawyer and a prosecutor, uh, my best friend growing up, this woman, Jessica, we went to high school together, and I had heard about this family for a long time, and she would talk about Lyle and Eric, and she had a crush on one of the boys, um, and they had grown up poor, and Jessica's parents and Lyle and Eric's parents had become very, very close friends. They were best friends with each other in New York City years earlier. So I'd been hearing about them for a long time, and then one day... Jessica calls me up and she's crying. And she tells me the story about how Lyle and Eric's parents had been murdered. And not just murdered, but, you know, shot to pieces. Their bodies were blown apart. The police report suggested that Jose, the father's head, was nearly severed from his body. And we had a long discussion uh, about who might have done it. And the cops thought maybe it was a mafia hit because it was done with such violence. And then some months later, she called and said, they've arrested the boys. And it must be a mistake. 
and we stayed up all night talking about it. You know, how could there have been a mistake? And then she called a few months after that to say the defense lawyer uh, had called members of the family, and the members of the family then called Jessica's parents to say that the boys were going to argue that it was some form of self-defense because they had, been, they had been abused. So they were essentially admitting that they had killed their parents. And we, again, we stayed up all night thinking, you know, how could we have, how could she have missed that? She knew this, mm-hmm. she knew this family very, very well. She'd grown up with them. And you realize that you really, really, really can't know everything there is to know about someone. You can't know about someone's guilt or someone's innocence in a deep, deep way unless you really think about it. And so for, for me, when someone tells me based on preliminary inquiry, well, so-and-so could not have done it uh, or so-and-so must be innocent, I think about the Menendez brothers. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, sometimes, uh, even though it's troubling to think about, the privileged sons of millionaires massacre their parents. And, it's, and it's very, it's, it's, there's something shattering about that, but also important. Another thing that you write, which I also found interesting, was that the worst mistakes are often made in the well-meaning margins. To me, this is one of the most frightening aspects of law enforcement responsibility. Can you give me an example of where that happened? Yeah, first, just let me say, you're reminding me of something. Um, the book, even though it's focused on these stories of, of law and order and criminal justice, is not for lawyers. It's not for law enforcement folks. It's for everyone. Because anyone who exercises discretion, whether you're a reporter or you work in a bank or you're a physician or you're a teacher, you have to exercise discretion and decide who to punish sometimes or what course of action to take or to do the right thing or to break a rule or to violate some standard. And this is about all those kinds of decisions that you make. And it's also about making sure you stay on the path of excellence. So people rightly focus on, uh, you know, the crooked cop you know, or the dirty business person. But sometimes it's people who just deviate from standards, who forget to do their best work, who rely on other people to do work or go along with other people's conclusions without doing their own analysis that causes the biggest miscarriages of justice. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about a gentleman named Brandon Mayfield who was accused of being involved in the terrorist attack on trains on March 11th of 2004 where 191 people died in bomb attacks in Madrid, Spain. And the folks in Spain, they couldn't find a match when they found a bag of detonators near the bomb site. And they sent them to Quantico, where the FBI examined them, and they came up with a match. And the match came back to a white Oregonian in America named Brandon Mayfield, and so science had spoken. And the first fingerprint examiner said it's a match. The second fingerprint examiner said it's a match. The third did. The fourth did. And so they watched this man. They, they couldn't find any other link to Spain or to the terrorists in Spain. He never traveled to Spain. They didn't know what to make of it. But some other facts became known. And when they became known, they said, well, we must have the right guy because it turns out after they had made the matches, so it didn't determine you know, the matches, it wasn't biased uh, initially, that he had converted to Islam. Uh, he had married someone who was of the Muslim faith. He had defended in some kind of child custody proceeding an individual who had been convicted of material support for al-Qaeda and the Taliban, because Brandon Mayfield was a lawyer in Portland, Oregon. And people must have thought to themselves, well, I don't need to re-examine our first conclusions because he must be the guy, because he's a Muslim and Muslims probably did the terrorist act. Well, it turns out he wasn't the guy. And it turns out that the fingerprint match was incorrect. And the Spaniards ultimately connected the fingerprints to some other person named Daoud, who was the perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So it was total confirmation bias based total, on, on, total. on just sloppy work, not malignant work, but sloppy work. And it wasn't, it wasn't even super sloppy work. It turns out 
that by happenstance, the two prints, the one of the, the actual perpetrator and Brandon Mayfield, were incredibly similar, you know, unbelievably similar, but they were not identical. Mm-hmm. And so little differences in those prints, according to the inspector general and other people who have analyzed the case, they ignored a little bit, mm-hmm. ultimately, mm-hmm. and didn't go back and check because of the confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean by the well-meaning margins. Mm-hmm. The book really is sort of a, an ethical primer, right, on, on making the right calls, uh, as you say, much more than it is simply a, a memoir about working in the justice system. Where do you think you got your own moral compass from, Preet? Because it's so pronounced and seems to have been there from a very <laughs> early age. I think my parents, um, my mother and father, you know, my father emigrated from India. I was born in India. Uh, he's a doctor by training. Um, I often say he was <laughs> disappointed that neither of his sons, I have a brother, went to medical school. But I think if my dad had grown up in America, he might have become a lawyer. Um, you know, back in, in India, he was born in 1939. If you were a very bright student, and he was, you became either or were sort of pushed into becoming either an engineer or a, or a medical doctor. Law was not as inviting a career path if you were really bright. But my father is as ethical a person as I know, hates corruption, talked about the corruption he saw in certain places when he was growing up and, and early in his life in India. And, you know, my parents, as I say in the dedication, the last paragraph of the acknowledgments in the book are to my mom and dad, who I say they're not lawyers and never, you know, much cared for me to become a lawyer, are the first ones who taught me about principles and they taught me about justice just by modeling it. Uh, those values and virtues every day. Any sort of times when he gave you advice that you really remember? Well, the, the most important advice he gave, which maybe I took too much to heart, um, you know, later in life, uh, was was hard work. You know, nothing comes without hard work. I mean, he worked really hard, and at times he worked multiple jobs to send us to private school. And you know, I I had times when I was a little bit lazy, and sometimes you think you can just rely on being smart. Uh, and by the seat of your pants. But real success never comes unless you work, you know, really, really hard. Now, now he tells me, you know, you should work less hard. You should take it easy. I said, Dad, you spent, you spent my, my whole youth telling me to work hard. And now he thinks maybe <laughs> maybe, maybe he overdid it. Uh, I mean, that is so kind of antipathetic, though, to the messages of the culture all around us. I mean, I've been so totally obsessed, as I think a lot of people have been, about the college admissions scandal. Right? Oh, With yeah. Hedge fund guys, actresses chairman of white shoe law firms, you know, paying hundreds of thousands of dollars in bribes and all kinds of scams to get their uh, kids into elite Ivy League colleges. I mean, do you think we're in the middle of some kind of crisis of of conscience in in the way people are behaving right now? Or has it just always been there? Maybe it's always been there. But I think what has been provoked by the college admission scandal is this sharp divide between the privileged and people who don't have the same privilege. You know, in this time, no story breaks through. Everyone is always talking about Michael Cohen and Paul Manafort and the Russia investigation and impeachment, that no other legal story, it takes something really special to break through, like Jussie Smollett and the hate crime, that broke through, and this college admission scandal. Because people can really understand that. And they're really angry about it. They're you know, there's really some, there's some cases that I did when I was U.S. attorney that I, I could tell when it resonated because you know, people on the street would make a comment about it. Or the security guards at SDNY would shake my hand and, and be proud to be working in a place where we brought a certain kind of case. And they were the public corruption cases because people thought the politicians are dirty and it really made them angry. 
And then there was another case we brought against the people who were trying to game the system at the Long Island Railroad. And so there were all these people, um, statistically impossible, who uh, claimed that they had tissue damage or back pain or arthritic problems to get early retirement and full you know, disability pension. And then literally a week later, we're playing golf or learning how to do um, martial arts. And that case, it's not the most significant case in the world. It made people really, really angry. And I think, because you know what? Who doesn't want to retire early? Right. Who doesn't want to get the benefit? Who doesn't want to kick back and play golf and get you know a disability pension for doing it? It just, it strikes people and it resonates with people. And I think this college admission case is the same kind of thing. The people who already have all this privilege, mm-hmm. already have all this money, already have the, the, the wherewithal to give their kids tutoring and extra special lessons and private school and everything else you could possibly want, they still felt the need to advantage themselves unlawfully even further. And so I think there's a reckoning that's got to come with respect to that. I know that's what absolutely fascinates me. It's it's a kind of cardinally interesting question to me, which is, you know, what makes super rich people risk everything just to have that edge, right? I mean, To have a little more. Look, Raj Rajaratnam, who was a massive insider trader defendant that we had, ended up getting 11 years in prison. He was already a billionaire. Maybe you could argue that yeah. one of the ways he got to a billion was by cheating. But you know, we acknowledged at the trial that large amounts of trading activity at his hedge fund, Galleon Group, was legit. They did proper research. You know, Not every trade was a cheat, and they were making a lot of money. And he risked you know, everything, uh-huh. his firm, uh, his wealth, his liberty, yeah. to make a little bit more. Rajat Gupta, who was an associate of Raja Ratnam, who was incredibly distinguished, the head of McKinsey on the board at Goldman Sachs, was, I think, by uh, public accounts, worth $100 million. Legit, $100 million. And to make a little more to curry favor with this billionaire, Raja Ratnam, he sacrificed his liberty too. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but it happens all the time. Now, when you bring those guys in for questioning... You know, they're not used to being challenged. They're masters of the universe. Uh, They are represented by extremely high-priced lawyers. They don't expect anyone to really mess with them. How do they behave when you bring them in, when you face them with this? Well, so those folks didn't come in. They proclaimed their innocence and they went to trial. Um, And so there, there wasn't an interrogation of those folks. But by proxy, I will tell you, depending on who they are, they behave arrogantly in their defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Roger Rutnam hired as his lawyer, John Dowd, who was for a time President Trump's lawyer. And they adopted, you know, a belligerent, accusatory, scorched earth, uh, witch hunt chanting defense. Mm-hmm. So sometimes masters of the, of the universe do that. Sometimes masters of the universe, you know, like to hire a lawyer who's a pit bull and a bulldog, uh, any other metaphor you want to use yeah. for belligerence. And without casting aspersions on anyone's particular legal ability, you know, sometimes it's better to hire the quiet lawyer right. who you know, knows how to accommodate various interests and knows how to advise you on the best course. Belligerent people don't often like to do that. Right. No. I was actually really fascinated to read about uh, your prosecution of the Hassan Namazi case. He was the very polished, connected financier in New York who was deeply wired, right, in democratic circles. And he turned out really to be a sort of mini Bernie Madoff. And I knew Hassan Namazi. And 
uh, and had lunch with him uh, actually two days before you arrested him on the tarmac as he was about to take off <laughs> on a private plane for his family vacation. And I'll never forget him saying to me, you know, we talked about what he was going to read on the beach and yeah. uh, all the things he was going to do and how he's, you know, going to sail around. And he started telling me about great hotels in Italy and all the rest of it. Boom. Then the next minute I opened the, you know, uh, the news feed and there is uh, he, he's been arrested on the yeah. tarmac. So uh, tell me how that went down. It's such a fascinating story to me. So I'd been on the job for 10 days uh, in 2009, and I was just getting up to speed, and I was you know, drinking from the fire hose, learning about hundreds and hundreds of cases. And I happened to be in the office all weekend, and it was a Sunday, and my deputy, Boy Johnson, one of my best friends, came into my office, and he said, you know, we have a situation. And I said, what's the situation? And he said, and he brought in another prosecutor, John Hillebrecht, who had been alerted by the FBI because banks had alerted the FBI that... This gentleman, Hassan Namazi, they weren't sure if he was, you know, legit uh, and had the wealth that he said he had. And he had procured uh, loans, you know, in the in the hundreds of millions of dollars from banks on false pretenses. And so we weren't sure what was going on. He was flying out of the country that day. That's why it came to a head on a Sunday. So on the one hand, you're worried that you have somebody who might have committed a serious crime or crimes and maybe leaving the jurisdiction. Maybe he knows that he's under investigation or maybe he'll leave and find out and never come back and... No prosecutor's office likes to have that kind of egg on their face. You don't like fugitives who go to another country. But on the, on the other hand, how many hands is that now? <laughs> on the other hand, uh, we didn't have direct proof and we had just begun the investigation and we didn't really know what was going on. So we decided to take a mid-course and have agents go meet him at the airport. They didn't actually arrest him then, but to go meet him at the airport and see if they could persuade him not to fly. And he was such a gentleman as if nothing had occurred and said, no, no problem. It's all big, big, big misunderstanding and I'll clear it up tomorrow. And I think that I'm forgetting now the exact number. I think it was like $180 million, something like that. And I remember being relieved that he didn't fly away. We didn't have to make an arrest and have egg on our face. It didn't matter that he was connected to Democrats. Um, that, that was of no consequence to us. What was of consequence to us is if you arrest prematurely anyone, it's not a good thing. If you arrest prematurely someone who was very prominent and has an unblemished record, you're doing very serious harm to that person's reputation that it's hard to undo. So you have to mm -hmm. be responsible in that way. And then the next morning, prosecutor comes into my office, John comes to my office and says, you're not going to believe this. And he might have uttered an expletive. Uh, he paid it all back overnight, the $180 million. I think, wow, we, we really saved ourselves some embarrassment. And then John said, well, you know, something seems fishy about it. Let me see. And what's amazing to me is Fast forward, he had committed the $180 million fraud, something of that nature. And then when he got caught, he calmly the next morning went into another bank and on the same false pretenses <laughs> got $180 million to pay back to the first bank, thereby in one day doubling his fraud and doubling his exposure. Stunning. And he ended up getting a lot of time in jail. And it goes back to the original point that you, know, you can't really know anything about anybody. And the lesson for people is you, know, you can't do an FBI background check on every human being you ever engage with. But you know what? A lot of people don't check. People right. don't look at these things. You know, the banks in, in the Namazi case, they hadn't done the basic fact checking of knowing their customer and realizing um, that this person who had a plane and he had a multi-million dollar apartment and he had all these properties uh, and all these connections, if they had called his office, they would have realized it was just an answering service. Yeah, it's so stunning, isn't it, though? Because, I mean, other people have an impossible time, time to get, you know, a $50,000 loan. And yet these guys yeah. are getting multi-million dollars. It's, it's part, again, of the sort of privilege being an exponential sort of... Uh, it says something about, um, about privilege and about people's respect for privilege. If you walk a certain way and you have a certain degree, and, you know, Namazi 
a lot, all these these people we've been talking about, by the way, all went to the best schools. Right. And he was super polished in every way. Super polished. And if you walk into a bank and you look a certain way and you have certain pictures on the wall, people will think it's okay. And it's not. And Bernie Madoff did the same thing. We had a, a stockbroker to the stars, as we call him. Ken Starr. I'm afraid I knew him well. Did you invest, did you invest <laughs> your money with him? I just miss being stolen from, but boy, he... You're on the precipice of a lot of bad yeah, stuff. Yeah, I'm you? sorry, but, you know, if you're not invited, you're not indicted. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like it's, <laughs> this whole group is like so fraught with people who ended up doing bad stuff. And and by the way, the, the thing that's alarming, not to overly alarm anyone, but the victims of these, of these crimes were really sophisticated people. Right. You know, Ken Starr had a roster of clients for whom he was their investor, that reads like a who's who from I Hollywood. I know. Mike Nichols, Annie Leibovitz, yeah. Richard Avedon. Really I smart mean... people. You know, Bernie Madoff, the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they pretend in a certain way, you know, a certain kind of con man who understands the psychology of exclusivity and not only walks a certain way, talks a certain way, is polished, is on all the right boards, but also if you had gone up to someone like that and said, hey, well, you know, I, hey, I understand that you invest for folks um, in my in my profile and a couple of friends recommended me, he didn't take your money right away. Right. He would say, well, I don't know really if I can take you on. Like, I need to think about it. Um, and so you have this fear of missing out, the FOMO problem. Sure. And con men know how to take advantage sure. of that. So people have yeah. to be careful. Manipulating insecurities, really. To go to the grimier side of the street, I mean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's you pretty did, grimy. Yeah, well, you do, yeah, but it's grimy in, in, in less, uh, not in Armani suits, really. Um, you did a lot of mob work, too, right? And um, <clears throat> We did, and yeah, we do. Which is a great, it must be a, kind of fascinating. It is fascinating. How was that? <laughs> Give me some mob dish. Well, um, the, the funny thing about the mob is this use of cooperation. And I talk about this in the chapter on, on cooperators. The President of the United States has said that flipping is terrible and it, it should practically be illegal. And you're a rat. And you're a rat. And he uses mob language. So the, the mob analogies are sort of interesting. Um, the fact is that the mob is not what it used to be. It's still around, still alive and kicking. And they still extort and they still use baseball bats and, and that sort of thing. But they're not at the strength that they used to be. And the simple reason for that is the use of cooperation. You know, that's where the mob initially, uh, the La Cosa Nostra, the, the Italian mob, was so adamant about the principle of omerta, right? Silence. Mm-hmm. And you take an oath. And they're very careful about who gets inducted uh, and becomes a made man of the, of the mob. And you have to have a certain lineage and you have to have certain um, things that you've accomplished and done. And they draw a drop of blood and then you're supposed to keep silent. But even when you have tight associations like that, if you can get a foothold and bring charges against one person who thinks he's maybe being betrayed by other folks uh, higher up in the chain, then you can get the person to flip and wear a wire and do various things. Is that something that you personally have done with people making them flip? Yeah. Yeah, all the time when I was a line prosecutor. Uh, and what did you use as a device to make them do that? Well, the first thing is you have to have evidence against them, right? So you, you build up in the food chain. So you know, either through a wiretap or through some other cooperating witness or extortion victims, you build a case against somebody. And then when you bring them in, I talk about the ways in which you get people to flip. What people, I think, miss because they watch a lot of movies is they think you, you bring the bad guy in and you yell at them and you, you beat them over the head and say, you know, you have to give us other people on a silver platter. It's not how it works. It never works that way. The best agents and detectives and prosecutors that I have ever met to a person, and I went back and talked to all of them in writing the book, to confirm my view that the best way to get someone to flip is just be straight with them. Say, look, here's the evidence. Here's what's happening. I mean, you might embellish to make them think that you have more than you have. <laughs> I tell the story of a detective I used to work with, Kenny Robbins, who would, you know, he'd bring a tough guy in 
and wanted him to cooperate and help bring in you know, other people who committed crimes. And he said, I didn't yell. I didn't threaten. He said, I would get a picture if I could of the person's wife or daughter or son. And I would put it on the table and I would let them look at it for a while. And then I would say, look, you can be a man. You know, he would redefine what manhood was for them. He's like, you can be a man and keep your mouth shut. That's fine. Or you could be a man and be there for your daughter's graduation or be there for your son's 16th birthday and be a father to them and be a, a husband to your wife. And then he would leave the room and let them think about it. You know, pretty plain spoken, not harsh or yelling, but blunt and truthful. And that's how you got guys to flip. Right. And that's what you do with mob folks too. You impress upon them. My colleagues prosecuted a guy named Mikey Scars, who's a member of the Gambino crime family. I tell the story about how we always knew when Mikey Scars was being uh, proffered, was being interviewed by my colleagues on the ninth floor, which is where the organized crime folks were. And I was a member of that unit when I was a line prosecutor. Because the doors would open from the conference room and you could smell garlic and pasta and sausage <laughs> and peppers because he was in custody. They would bring him out from the Metropolitan Correctional Center, the MCC. And they, my colleagues, would let Mikey's girlfriend bring food and not just any food. I mean, she brought an Italian spread like Parmesan cheese, sausage and peppers. I said, and then after, you know, they left and there were some leftovers, some people may or may not have partaken of the, <laughs> of the feast. It's a little thing, right? And it goes back to the point that everyone needs to remember in all of their professions, you know, everyone's a person. Even this guy, Mikey Scars, who was involved in racketeering and extortion and homicide, you know, it meant something to him that he could have, you know, food that he loved and see his girlfriend during these proper sessions. And he went back and forth thinking it's not the right thing to flip. And he started to cooperate and they changed his mind. And then there comes a point where he was so distraught about flipping on, turning on his former compatriots in the Gambino family uh, that he tried to kill himself. He swallowed a bottle of pills, went to the hospital, then had to be rehabilitated in the way of, of thinking about how do, you, how do you protect his family. And he realized, you know what, my, my real family comes before my crime family. Right, right. And then he testified at a number of trials and sent a lot of bad guys away. So, you know, the mob cases are different and, and people write about them in movies and see them in movies and, and it's sexy in a certain way. But it's the same psychology that operates in all sorts of places. Well, you, you know. saw it happening with Michael Cohen. I mean, in the end, it was he realized that, you know, his sort of uh, hero worship of Trump and his, his the fake father, as it were, um, wasn't as important as actually his own family. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But, but everyone's different. Look, there are some people, this is why the, I think it's the most fascinating chapter for me to have written in the book, because I went back and thought about my own experiences and my colleagues' experiences and the ones I oversaw. Sometimes, you know, Matthew Martoma was one of the big insider traders at SAC Capital and was on the hook for a lot of time, didn't flip, didn't open his mouth. There was another guy, Noah Freeman, who was insider trader, who was approached by an agent. He flipped in a minute. And not only did he flip in a minute, he decided to wear a wire against the person who had been his best man. Mm. And that was because he just had a child. And he said, I can't go to jail, and I'll do anything to avoid going to jail. And there's, there's story after story after story like that that I think are illuminating for people to understand you know, how the justice system works, how humans operate, and how they can think about dilemmas in their own lives. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Um, as a, someone who's listened to so many mob wiretaps, I mean, does Trump's world have any resonance to you? I mean, does it feel to you like kind of want to be. They kind of want to be mobsters. The people that Trump has decided to surround himself with, Cohen, Manafort, Roger Stone, they all have mob affectations. I don't know if they're going around extorting people. It sounds like they've been doing some kinds of crime, you know, of the, of the white-collar variety. Is this, is, is this a kind of, uh, do you think, compensatory manhood uh, situation? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I am prepared to say that right now on your show. <laughs> I, I, I think so. I mean, Michael Cohen, who, you know, all droopy dog now and everyone thinks he's wonderful, you got to remember that five minutes ago, people rightly thought that he was like a terrible person, not just because he lied to Congress, but he enabled this man. He engaged in thuggish behavior. He would call reporters up on the phone and, ba- and threaten them. You know, it sounds kind of cartoonish, but I think the people who are on the receiving end of all sorts of, you know, pressure and intimidation on the part of people like Michael Cohen or Roger Stone, you, know, you have to wonder what that personality was like and why is Trump... Look, Trump is not only drawn to them. Maybe that's right. not even as bad as the fact that he's drawn to these strongman types right. who run other countries. Right. But it has been a theme in his life. It has. Yeah. You know, that, that's, not, that's not the way I think ordinary people should conduct themselves at the highest levels of government. Well, speaking of thuggish behavior, what is your view on how the Harvey Weinstein case has been prosecuted thus far? And how do you think it's going to pan out with Harvey? Uh, so I don't know. Some, I, I don't like to comment on other people's cases. I think uh, there's been a lot of attention to the Me Too movement, which has been incredibly positive and good to get prosecutors who are in a position to do so to really, really focus on the evidence and think about how they can vindicate the rights of victims. Um, I write in the book about a similar sort of case and, and this idea of prosecutors need to want to help the victim because it's become very easy. And it's not irrational. It's become very easy to worry about how a case is going to go because the victim is not powerful or the victim is vulnerable. You have a wonderful story in the book, actually, about putting a victim witness on the stand who you thought that juries might have trouble with, but you put her on in anyway. Yeah, these these great prosecutors in my office... You know, there are a lot of famous cases that get talked about, but there's some of the most important ones and the greatest lessons come from the unknown cases. And there was a case of a woman named Sue Ann who was beaten and robbed in her home and $11,000 taken from her. And so it seems like a garden variety robbery case. The problem is that this woman was a working prostitute and the $11,000 that was stolen was her revenue from her sex work. And she was also bipolar. And she also had been in a bad way in a lot of different ways that she was epileptic and you know, this is the kind of person who probably thought, I can never get justice anywhere. And for various reasons, the Bronx DA's office declined prosecution, not an illegitimate decision. But the detective on the case you know, really believed her and really felt bad for her and brought the case. Not the usual kind of case that federal prosecutors do, $11,000 robbery from a, from a working prostitute, brought the case to our office. And the prosecutors on the case, Khan Nawade and Tatiana Martins, took up the cause and built a case that had, you know, problems. And the major problem it had was who's going to believe Sue Ann? Who's going to believe this person? And the perpetrator, you know, must have thought, if there's anything I can get away with, I can get away with stealing from this person who has been a victim her whole life and no one is going to believe. And for me, maybe the most moving story in the book is how the folks in my office, the detective and the prosecutors, believed in her. And on the eve of trial, they came up with I want to give it away, but they, they came up with a smoking gun piece of proof at the last minute, and they didn't want to plead the case out when they might have been able to. And why? Because they wanted Sue Ann to have her day in court. Mm. The chapter is called Day in Court. 
And it was very important for her. And right. she was very angry and she wanted day in court. And when the conviction occurred, uh, Suen basically dropped to her knees and thanked right. you know, these public servants who were doing their job. First time anyone had ever really had any, ever defended her or gone to bat for her. That's right. Yeah. And the fact that that can happen, and you know that can happen, I think can motivate people to think about other victims. And look, it's, a, it's an uphill battle when you have a, you know, a victim who's difficult or stubborn or has a bad memory. That doesn't mean that they don't deserve a shot. And right. it's difficult. Look, prosecutors, detectives, agents, they're all professionals, just like journalists and just like you know, doctors and other people in other professions. And they don't like to lose. They don't like to right. uh, be embarrassed. But I think what the Me Too movement has shown and the, the news about Harvey Weinstein has shown that you just have to work extra hard. It's not always possible, but you got to work extra hard. So final question really to you, Preet. How do you stay hopeful when you see the worst of humanity? You know, that's the amazing thing about SDNY. The people there every day, by definition, saw the worst that other human beings could do, kill people, burn people, try to take down buildings, you know, terrorism, gangs, etc., stealing from vulnerable people their life savings. It's terrible. But what inspires me is watching all the people who, when they see that day in and day out, maintain their sense of humor, maintain their optimism, and realize that if they can do one good thing that day, that's better. And you can't just give up. So being in the SDNY, simultaneously in that environment, you saw the worst people had to offer. And then on the other side, you saw the best people had to offer. Mm. And the combination of that continues to inspire me. Thank you so much, Dina, Thank you very much. The book is gripping. It's a must read. And uh, I wish you every success with it. Thank you so much. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. Liked what you heard today? There's more where that came from. Check out my earlier interview with legal warrior Vanita Gupta, head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division under Obama. It's available on Wondery.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. While you're there, please rate, review, and subscribe to TBD. It helps us spread the word. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton, Justin Janino, and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.